Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, how your week been? What's going on? Uh, my week has been pretty good, productive. I got back in the gym this week. I, I started Ooh. my new fitness journey, like okay. I said. And I'm, you know, taking it slow. I just want to be consistent. So I'm lifting three times a week and, you know, just in general running like 25 miles a month. So however that breaks up, that's good. But I, I feel good, Ty. That's good. That's good. Yeah. You know, got to start somewhere. And as long as you're being consistent, I mean, that's all that really matters. It's just it's about a health style thing. You know, I mean, a lifestyle mm-hmm. thing, a health style, <laughs> a lifestyle, uh, you know, keeping the consistency with it. So I think you're on the right track and definitely bringing in 2020 on that nice health tip is a good a good thing to do. Yes, because we so we're actually going to go to Vegas for like New Year's because that's also our anniversary. So it's okay. like I'm I'm trying to look good in my little New Year's dress. You know? <laughs> <laughs> trying to look good. It's going to be cold, Vegas. but I'm still going to put on a swimsuit. What's ve- what's cold in Vegas, man? Like 60s. Okay. They get to the 60s. All right. All right. That, yeah, that's that. I wouldn't call that cold, but it's not. It ain't like, yeah, beach weather. But but yeah, 60s, yeah. 65s. That's, that's not too bad. Yeah, so I never I ain't never been to Vegas, but my brother was just there a couple couple weeks ago. So I gotta get out there one day. He had a good time out there with him and his boys, little guys trip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's funny because I've been with my girls. John has been with you know his boys, but we've never been together. So it'll be fun. <laughs> it'll be fun. It's gonna be you two. Or it's gonna be a group of y'all. Uh, just us two. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. A little yeah. little couples hangover type. <laughs> uh-huh, <laughs> You know, I play poker, so I actually, I'm trying to get Oh, yeah. It's going to be yeah. right in your wheelhouse. Trying to yes. Get Come back with some money. Come back with some money. <laughs> That'll be nice. That'll be yeah. good. Yeah, that's fun. That's fun. That's yeah. what's up. Um, well, what's going on with you? Nothing much. Um, just, like, I know I say the same thing every week, but I am just counting down to the end of this semester. i just been kind of exhausted and a little fatigued mentally because all the they've just been busy uh, with the search and all that kind of stuff and um getting some papers out and all uh just been on on a lot doing a lot of things so i'm just like looking forward to at least this thanksgiving break for sure i just want to turn my brain off for a little bit but other than that you know everything's been going well everything's good trying to end this 20 2019 off strong bringing 2020 on the right foot for sure yes yes let's do it let's mm-hmm. do it for sure <laughs> and then we got what, what episode is this Nine, only like three episodes probably. away from 100 yeah probably like 96 97 something like Ooh, that we almost there <laughs> almost there episode 100 but yeah i think for episode 100 i think we can do like a just like a a, a review or recap you know of the journey and and some of our best moments that we enjoyed or uh, memorable moments and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that'd be a fun, fun thing to do. So actually this one that airs that we're doing now will mm-hmm. be 99. 
Really? Yes. I <laughs> oh, we already ninety nine. Yes. Hold on. Hold on. No, yeah. I don't. No, I think that. I think that's wrong. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Because no, the way 96. Apple, okay. yeah, the way Apple do it, for some reason they got us like two ahead than what we're supposed to be. Woo. Okay. I'm okay. I'm gonna be like, dang, what are we gonna do? Already? Actually, because yeah, I was scared. You're right. This will be ninety seven. This will be ninety seven. Okay, ninety seven. All right. So then we got ninety eight, ninety. Okay. So yeah, three episodes away. Um. So that gives us a little time to, to really think about what we're going to do for sure. But that'll be fun. Um, I think I definitely want to do like a recap and sharing a journey of of what it's been like doing doing this for 100 episodes. Wow. Man, that's, yeah. cra- that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. We should get syndication. I know. We should get something. <laughs> 100 episodes. Um, but all right. Uh, let's get into some old Lord news before we get into this week's interview. Okay. Hello. And welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... So, I, I just have to say, I just have to call this out. I'm not judging anybody but some of these headlines related to the re-release of this Popeye's chicken sandwich it's just ridiculous mm-hmm. <laughs> y- y'all been and it ain't just black folks this time I done seen so many brawls and fights between just about every race of people over this doggone chicken sandwich so you know one headline is seven uh, Popeye's employees fired after a brawl at a Milwaukee Popeye's um Popeye's employees get into a fight after uh, one is selling chicken sandwiches on the side. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I think um, I even saw one with um, they had uh, one or two children like putting the sandwiches <laughs> together in the back because they were oh, understaffed. Yeah, like, yeah, yo. actually, yeah, I think that's his headline right here. Texas Popeye cu- customers catches young boy working in restaurant kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yo, like child labor for the chicken sandwiches, yo. This is crazy. Yo, it is like, I don't know, maybe they should have just not even brought that dog on chicken sandwich bag. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about it, people are acting like it's not permanent now it's a permanent fixture in the restaurant not like last time was limited so like yo you, you're gonna get your sandwich i don't know why the craze is like i gotta get it right now when people are fighting and stabbing and having children working in the back like relax it's not that serious right <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I still haven't eaten it because I've seen memes as like, you know, people 10 years from now that ate that sandwich and they got like little warts everywhere. And somebody was like, in 10 years, people going to you're going to see a commercial. It's like, if you ate the Popeye's chicken sandwich 10 years ago, you might have a lawsuit. Like, you know, I haven't had it yet either. I mean, I've seen a lot of that speculation. Uh Cause people are like, they went away for a few months to like stock up, but everybody's like, how long do it really take to just find some chicken and some bread and some pickles? You know what I, mean? yeah. like, I don't know. Yeah, so in some minute to make these people go crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Somebody better test this chicken, run some, yeah. some tests. This other story, uh, so you know, Disney Plus just launched this week. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
Well, what's crazy is that thousands of hacked Disney Plus accounts are already on sale on Hacking Farm. Oh, wow. Yeah, people are already trying to give out those passcodes. So be careful out here. Did, or I guess you if you want to no, but I'm considering it's like what I don't even know what the point of Netflix is anymore. If everything is going to be taken off and put on the Warner streaming channel and the Disney streaming channel, like they literally own everything. Yeah. Hulu and ESPN and at least Disney Plus, but you see Netflix just signed a deal with Nickelodeon. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, you got Disney, oh. right, we, we got Nickelodeon, so. Okay, okay, okay. I guess I guess I could see that. I mean, I grew up on Nickelodeon, so. Yeah, same here. Um, But it's just like, I don't know, if Netflix can't figure out how to also bring old content on, I mean, I don't. It's going to be tough. Yeah, because Netflix, their original stuff is hit and miss, so. Yeah, I got I wasn't rushing to get Disney Plus immediately, but then um, I, my cell phone, I have Verizon Wireless. And so we get it for a year free. Oh, nice. oh I thought, OK, so why not? So I, I got it. I haven't watched anything yet, but they got a lot of like, you know, all the Disney traditional Disney stuff and Star Wars and a whole bunch of Marvel things, even like the old Marvel cartoons that people are into that. And then like National Nat Geo type stuff. So, you know, it's going to build. From there, but uh, we'll we'll see their interesting content. But you're right; they they own in a lot of stuff because they got Hulu under their belt too. Um, so that that original content is gonna be really really good, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So I was about to say you're gonna have to watch a little bit and do a review when we have our monthly um, conversation episode. Yeah, I try to watch a couple things. People have been talking about that show, The Mandalorian, which is like a Star Wars show on there. Mm. It's like their new one that they're like promoting the most. So I'll check that out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let me know. We'll see how I get it. <laughs> you got anything? Um, yeah, nothing, nothing kind of pop culture related, but more so um, things along policy and politics. Um, the first one is uh, really good news with uh, the the case with Rodney Reed, who was um, about to be executed. On the 20th, mm. uh, actually, when the day this episode is released, but there was a whole lot of push through social media, celebrities, etc., to get his execution stayed so it wouldn't happen. People were signing all kinds of petitions, writing all kinds of letters, and it worked. Mm. And so now they are pausing on the execution because, you know, it would happen during a lot of time of racism and a lot of evidence points that he is innocent but was convicted by an all white jury. And so I'm glad to hear that news and, you know, see a black man's life, innocent black man's life saved from what's been going on. Um, Because I think there was another case. I can't remember the guy's name, but it didn't. It was in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 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 they they still executed him. Um, So so it doesn't always work out that way. But fortunate enough for Rodney Reed, that is the case. And of course, you know, Kim Kardashian was around there, which I still be having my issues with. But hey, at least if it helps, it helps for sure. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to say that for him. I can get over my little own um, dislike of him. And another case that I want to talk about really quickly, it's been making a lot of headlines. So I just wanted to make sure our listeners kind of understand what's going on there is this Byron Allen case versus Comcast and Charter. Um, Why this case is significant uh, is because it really is going to address 
um, an older statue that we have on the books, really, um, the, uh, I think it's statute uh, section 1981 from um, the civil rights, 19, 1866 civil rights act, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not even the, in the one in the 1960s. Um, and so what's happened with this case in particular is that Byron Allen is a guy who's made a lot of money um, from entertainment. Um, he actually owns the Weather Channel uh, and he has like kind of a lot of these other spinoff black owned TV networks. And a few years ago, he was trying to get his shows on to Comcast. Comcast pretty much put him through all these hoops. And at the end of the day, they said no. And he got upset, naturally. So he was like, all right, well, we're going to, you know, take this to court. They took it to court against Comcast and another media company named Charter. Um, and he actually lost the Comcast case and won the Charter case. Uh, Charter got upset and said, well, we're going to appeal this in the Ninth Circuit. Then Byron Allen said, well, if you're going to appeal my case in the Ninth Circuit, then I'm going to appeal Comcast's case in the Ninth Circuit, right? And so they went to the Ninth Circuit and Comcast, I mean, not Comcast, the Ninth Circuit ruled in his favor on both cases. <laughs> um, and so that naturally upset both uh, companies. So what they're upset about is that uh, is this this but for standard. Essentially, what's happening here is that he's saying that he was racially discriminated against. Comcast and Charter are saying that the but, but for standard in that clause means that that has to be the only sole reason why they didn't accept his deal mm-hmm. or like hire him on or use the money, right? So 100% of the reason has to be, we don't like him, we don't want him here only because he's black and nothing else. And what Byron Allen and them are arguing is saying, hey, no, that's not the case. The case is if race was factored in just at all, even if it was just 5% of the reason, then you are going against this doctrine that we have since mm-hmm. since 1866. And so why the people are saying this is a big case for civil rights is because if he wins, it's huge. And this is why Comcast doesn't want them to win, because then they're going to be open uh, many companies are, you know, are going to be open to a whole bunch of lawsuits because now you don't have to put the, that entire burden of proof of we have to prove 100 percent that this was because of race. If it goes in Comcast and in favor, that's a huge hit against the, 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 stat, the statute because it's going to be impossible, impossible for anybody to combat any kind of racially discriminatory practices if you have to say it was for 100 percent, especially in today's day and age. So mm-hmm. um so this is this is why a lot of people are paying attention to us. It happened last Wednesday. Um, you know, uh, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor was pretty much in favor of Allen saying, hey, they don't need to prove 100 percent. They just need to say if, if any of them was uh, if any race was considered at all, it's enough. Uh, but, you know, Comcast and Charter has a lot of money. And they also mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump's DOJ, Department of Justice, actually argued uh, I think in court at the Supreme Court for about an hour in front of the justices again, trying to rule against uh, Allen, um, which is like has never like ever happened before where the Department of Justice is in the Supreme Court's face saying, hey, no, don't rule in favor for X, Y and Z reasons. Um, so we maybe hopefully this week we should hear a ruling um uh, the outcome of what it is because this happened kind of late last week. And so just want everybody to keep their eyes on this because it is a very important ruling, especially when it comes to black businesses and ownership. Yeah, it is honestly scary to me um, because it if they rule against or they rule in Comcast and in Charter's favor, 
that means that, I don't know, people can just come up with any, quote, legitimate excuse to not do business with you, even if it was really about race. Because if it wasn't 100 percent about race, that is, I don't know, that's real scary. Mm-hmm. I won't lie. <laughs> it, it's scary. And so, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of black folk are, I'm not going to say upset, but maybe a little anxious, irritated that he took this case to this far. But he keeps, mm-hmm. I mean, he's right. He's right. He's saying that he's not the one that took it that far. You know, he said he lost the first ones. Then they uh, appealed it. He appealed it. And he wind up winning both. And then now they both got upset and are taking it even further. Um so it's not that Byron Allen's like, I'm going to take this all the way up the chain. It's just kind of how it happened uh, from, you know, being it happened at the lower courts and their decisions of being lost in the ninth court. So hopefully they are still in the line with the ninth court, right? If the ninth court saw enough there to be like, hey, and even overturn their hit the original ruling with uh, Comcast, I think there is something there because um, that, that burden of proof on the plaintiff is too much. I don't think there's any other kind of statute where, you know, the plaintiff has to prove 100% why, right? It just has to be motivated, right? That Yeah, that and min- it clearly was, but it's scary because it's like, whatever happens in this case, Byron, you're going to be good. <laughs> you will yeah. be there, <laughs> but yeah. all of us can't say the same, so it's just kind of like... I just hope yeah. it works out. Woo, I hope it works out. So I will be paying attention to it. Hopefully I'll pay attention to it because there's a lot riding on the line. But let's just pray he rules and by they rule in Byron's favor because that will have hold these companies very accountable when it comes to um distribution to, to black services and getting us a piece of the pie for sure. I have a question. Will it be narrowly narrowly tailored just to that industry or could it have far-reaching effects just everywhere though. That's interesting. I'm not sure. Um, It should be honestly, I feel like it's going to have far-reaching effects because it'll be hard for anybody to, when it comes to business and entrepreneurship um, because that's what it's about uh, Mm -hmm. them not allowing black folks to get a piece of the table right they're discriminating against them because they're black owned networks Um, so I see that happening in most other spaces too, in corporate spaces Um, if if you're discriminating against folks and there's a pattern uh, I think, and if there's enough to say that race plays a part, you know, they would lose these lawsuits based on the statute uh, if if we're looking at it that way. So, but definitely the entertainment sector for sure, yeah. to say the least, which is which is a lot. Yeah. Oh man, but we'll see. Well, moving us closer to mm-hmm. our, our topic for today, um, politics um, and just what's been going on there. So there were two really big governor's races um, that just recently happened, Louisiana and Kentucky. And mm-hmm. your president inserted himself into both of these races, like, you know, if a win for ex-Republican candidate is a win for me, you know, things of that nature. Well, I don't know. The people spoke because in both cases, they voted in a Democratic. uh, Yeah. Oh, man, the GOP is looking crazy right now Um, because you are losing in states that are like you should never be losing in. Um, And they're lost. And so that's not a good sign coming up to this primary. Um, that you probably won't be winning these states like you used to in the past. And people are tired of anything, you know, attached with Trump is not it's not helpful, which was still worrisome of why so many of the people in the Republican Party are like siding themselves with Trump. You know, mm-hmm. historically, he, it's going to look crazy. Like, 
your reputation is going to look so bad that you did not stand up enough to be like, yeah, I don't agree with this or I don't need or want Trump support. Like try to separate yourself from them. And nobody's really doing that. So now they're losing races because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, you don't want to put too much stock into something, but it's kind of like maybe this is a sign that people are getting fed up and, you know, you don't want to read too much into it, but it's this, I don't know. Hopefully this is a sign of what's to come in 2020. Yeah, no, I think, I think it is a, it's a, it's a sign. I think that we all want to see, I mean, most of us who are, you know, anti-Trump, these are the kind of trends we would like to see um, that his support isn't enough getting him, especially in red states, of getting Mm -hmm. somebody red elected as governor. That's a pretty big statement right there. But also it just shows the importance of you have to have good candidate because people will vote for a good candidate, even if they are a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, But we we just we got to get the right candidate out there, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, the day tonight when the night this episode airs um, is going to be uh, November's um, Democratic debate. And it's interesting now because there's a lot of conversation talking about who's leading the polls in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this guy a week or two ago, and it's Pete Buttigieg is now the leading candidate for the Iowa caucus. And it's very interesting to see how that's uh, going to play out. Um, yeah. He has put a lot, pretty much all his resources in Iowa, um, which explains some of that uptick, but he was already on the upswing. Mm-hmm. Um, so now he's using that in his advantage, uh, that momentum, and it seems to be working out for him. So this is very interesting. Yeah, it is. And the fact that people, it's November and people still entering the race, Deval Patrick, who was mm-hmm. the Massachusetts governor. So it's like, ciao. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I think um, Castro is not in this one, if I'm correct. Oh. Um, I, I, I think, I think he made the donations, but I don't think he made the poll. The poll. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he, he made it to this one. Uh, so that's going to be interesting too. But then do you hear his comments about uh, beginning the, you know, um, <clears throat> caucuses in like Iowa and New Hampshire? Um, he was saying that, you know, we need to really think, rethink that because those states aren't representative of America. Mm. And so, you know, most of the candidates tailor their platforms in the beginning to the ears of the peoples in those states. Mm. Uh, but he's like, yo, this is not we need to go to states or places where it's a, a greater representation of what America looks like. And so we can hear that and they can focus their attention there. And I mean, I think that also I think that's true. And I think that also probably comes to some of his frustrations, too, of the things that he cares about. He wants to talk about. Probably not, you know, the two the people in Iowa are probably not too concerned about things like immigration um, as much as they would be in like places like Texas or California or wherever else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was an interesting, you know. Yeah, soundbite. I I agree. I agree. Iowa and New Hampshire, they they run a lot, <laughs> yeah. and I think New Hampshire probably like two percent. 1% black or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, a good point. So we probably need to go to states with at least, you know, 20% people of color or something like that. I don't yeah. Um, to make it more representative. But that's interesting to say the least. Um, 
Anything else politics-wise? I don't think so. No, I just want to talk about, you know, get into, so like for today's topic, you know, people talk about what's driving support for Trump. What's, Mm -hmm. you know, why are people doing this? And, you know, today we're going to actually talk about the sociology of that and talk about some research related to why are people supporting this guy or why are they supporting, you know, these other policies, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, we have on our guy, Dr. Ryan LeCount. Um, he, we have some overlapping time at Purdue, so he's just, you know, one of our Purdue homies from back in the day. He's an associate professor now and chair of the Department of Sociology at Hamlin University. And so his work really tackles a lot of these questions, really um, looking at racial attitudes and politics and, you know, a wide range of topics. But yeah, things about, you know, Trump, but also about police officers, law enforcement, criminal justice, and these kind of uh, racial sentiments, which is, you know, really, really interesting. And, you know, we're glad to have him on because it was a really informative interview for sure. Mm -hmm. And his article about racial resentment and political ideology was actually the most downloaded sociology article in I think for 20, 2018. 2018, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I also saw he was on Roland Martin last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was. Um, because of, I think because of that article. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's out here, you know, he's out here killing it, man. And so we're glad that he took the time to come chat with us and catch up with him and talk about his work because it is very timely. And again, a lot of the questions that he seeks to answer, a lot of the questions that we all have, like, why is this happening? You know, when it comes to support for folks like Trump or support for, you know, what's going on when it comes to police brutality and things along those lines, I think he he definitely answered some of those questions. So I think you guys will get, I know you guys will get a lot out of it. So without further ado, uh, let's get Dr. LeCount on and then we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Yeah. Since the unexpected outcome of the 2016 election, there has been substantial scholarly and public debate about the factors shaping the support for the rise of Trump. Today, we discuss the sociology behind voting behavior and the role of race in politics by interviewing Dr. Ryan Jerome LeCount, an associate professor and chair of the Department of Sociology at Hamlin University. Specifically, we discuss his research on the relationship between racial resentment and political ideology, the sociology behind Trump's rise, the politics of gun control, and racial attitudes among police officers. We close by discussing how to tackle potentially controversial conversations in our current political climate. Welcome, Dr. LeCount. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, excited. So Ryan's research focuses on the intersection of race and politics in the United States. And he actually had one. uh, Actually, it was the most downloaded (laughs) article in 2018 for sociology focused on white racial attitudes. And that's what we're here to talk to him today about uh, the idea of racial resentment, political ideology, and racial attitudes. Um, so just excited to have you here and get started. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And uh, of course, I'm always excited to talk about the research and couldn't be more timely, I don't think. And uh, so oh. <laughs> ready to dig in, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, before we dig into your research, of course, we want our listeners to know a little bit more about who you are. So can you you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey journey to the academy and just anything else interesting that you want to share? You you have a lot of interesting hobbies, it seems as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do. I, I I try to keep try to keep busy. Uh, I'm 
I've had a, a kind of a long and, and winding road. Um, so I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be a, a scholar uh, from the time that I was fairly young. And, um, you know, I was one of those rare people that kind of had a sense that I, that I wanted to be a professor um, when I was a teenager. And um, I, I started I started college at a, a little tiny institution. Uh, it's now called the University of Cumberland's. I was a student athlete. I played football. And um, I was kind of from the very beginning um, unclear about whether or not it was going to be a, a American history or or sociology. And, and the longer I spent in my undergraduate study, the, the clearer it became to me that that history was kind of descriptive and uh, that, that, that sociology provided the tools of, of analysis. Um, so it became clear to me that that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I, I kind of had a further winding path. I ended up at, at Ball State University in, in, in Indiana um, and then uh, did some work at Indiana University. Um, and then I ended up at Purdue uh, where I did my master's and, and PhD um, and wrapped that work up and I started um, uh, my job at, at um, Hamlin University in um, St. Paul, Minnesota in, in 2014. So uh, I'm here with my partner and um, I've got a, a relatively uh, young son who's very, very energetic, a three and a half year old son who takes up a lot of time, but also on, on a more serious note um, engenders a lot of urgency about the work I'm doing in case I ever needed to be reminded, right, about um, the seriousness of all of this stuff and, and, and the world we've got in front of us. So, uh, but I'm really happy to be in, in a big city. Um, something that left, uh, frankly, a little bit to be desired about being in the greater Lafayette area. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to be in a big city up here in, in the twin cities and, um, and I've got great colleagues. It's great to be in a place, a liberal arts school where I can really, uh, uh focus on, on teaching, I would like to have a little bit more resources and time to do the research because I've got a lot going on, as I think we'll get a chance to talk about. But um, uh, I certainly, uh, certainly am, am living my dream life in a, in a lot of ways. To be honest, this is the kind of exactly the life I hoped to have when I was when I was younger. Um, so the one thing I miss that that um, I did have a chance to do when I was uh, back in Indiana is a uh, regular time to play music, something I hope to get back into. I'm, I'm a musician and uh, something I hope to get back into as I've got a sabbatical coming up that starts in uh, that starts in December. Yeah, that's what's up. That's what's up. So you're still, you're still playing in the blues, right? That's what you were yeah. playing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I've been doing it mostly by myself and I'm excited to get back at it. And uh, yeah, because I, I miss I miss that, you know, that whole way of being in the world is different than being, you know, somewhat as similar as being in front of a group of undergraduates, you know, it's a little performative, right. But, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not quite the same, you know, you get, you get a little bit of a license to <laughs> be in a whole different kind of way when you're being creative that way. And I miss that. So yeah, I want to get back at that. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully, you know, you could use that sabbatical man to get back to, yes. to that course. That'll be fun. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, talking about some of your research, you know, thank you for the background information. And so currently your research primarily focuses on race and politics. And we can see why somebody might start dibbling and dabbling that now because of yeah. the current state of things. But you've been doing this well before then. Um, so, you know, kind of what sparked your interest again to these topics? Yeah. So, like I said, I, for going all the way back to, you know, the early 90s <laughs> when I started my academic work, um, 
I got interested in, in U.S. society and, and understanding it, and it, it became clear to me really early on that if I was going to understand this society, that, that race was a really key part of understanding who we are as a society and why things work the way they do. And that if I was going to understand really anything about our history, which is where I've spent a lot of time, and still my, my work is informed a lot by history, to be clear, but um, that I had to understand how, how race worked. Um, and and the, the other big thing about politics is, is the way I operationalize what politics is, is it's about power and understanding how power works and, and uh, how people and groups relate to each other and how power is understood and leveraged and experienced and legitimated and by whom and to what extent and to what effect. And so, um, you know, I, I, frankly, earlier on in my life, I was excited about being involved in politics as a, a means to sort of bring about social change. Um, you know, I guess if, if formally in, in terms of institutional politics, but it became clear to me as time went on that that would involve a lot of, frankly, moral sacrifice. And you have to do a lot of things that uh, did seem like compromises that I wasn't willing to do. Um, so I've always been a, a somebody who's really, really interested in politics and understanding how it worked. And and so, you know, th those two understandings brought me just, you know, frankly, while I was in graduate school, it became clear to me that that, that nexus, that intersection was was where all of my questions really were, is is how how were our our politics uh, structured by race, essentially how were our, our, our politics raced and how was race politicized in the United States. Um, and it, you know, I, I often say to people somewhat jokingly that um, this moment that we're in has been, you know, it's been really fortuitous for somebody like me that does the work that I do in terms of, you know, frankly, a really horrifying, uh, but a, a natural experiment for coming to understand, you know, things finally being put on the table that, um, that for some, frankly, for many white people were plausibly deniable or invisible in the past are now much more visible, much more undeniable, much more explicit. Um, and so things that I've been uh, thinking about focusing on studying are now much more explicit than they've been in the past, um, which, you know, which is, is, is a great opportunity to do scholarship, but it's also leading us in places that, that, are, that are really terrifying. Um, uh, that's kind of how I got to this stuff and, and it's, it's been really interesting and you know I mean thinking about going all the way back to teaching race classes at Purdue in 2005 and 2006 and the kind of issues that we were getting into are now things that are kind of on the table and in the public discussion and the source of lots of controversy um, and there's this weird thing as scholars and I think probably both of you can identify with this that, that we have this sense of um, kind of ownership over these topics, whether it be as, as scholars or as activists, that we kind of kind of own the discourse and we can we can kind of almost um, maintain and curate the discourse and like it gets out in the world and it gets dirty and it gets, uh, you know, people people get all these kind of complicated, uh, inaccurate understandings of the way that things really are. Uh, but that's, of course, where change really happens, right? Where we, we don't have these clean, uh, uh, tight, internally consistent theories um, actually when people get out and, and, and start arguing about and dealing with these things that's maybe when, when change really happens but it's been really interesting for me to see that happen um, and it's interesting to see kind of every, everyday 
uh, conversations in our media and in and, and lots of different communities, uh, maybe conversations that were confined to communities of color, uh, move out into uh, uh, white communities, um, or when I were bringing those conversations into white communities and now they're showing up among people that weren't having those conversations in the past. I wish I could say that they were always, always the most productive, but at least those conversations are happening now. So I, I'm sorry, I can go on forever and ever and ever, but it's, it's an interesting time to be somebody who does what I do. Um, I, I wish that I could say I was super, super hopeful. I, I guess we'll probably have some time to talk about that. I think it's important to make a distinction between um, optimistic and, and hopeful. I, I am hopeful, I'm not optimistic. You know, um, Cornel West talks about the distinction between hope and optimism, right? Optimism is, is blind and it's ignorant and it's just kind of uh, doesn't engage with things as they are. Hope is about being really deeply engaged with with the kind of crises what we face, but but a kind of a sense that those things can be transcended. But boy, I'm telling you, sometimes I'm that, that hope is is challenged. Mm, yeah, we will definitely get into those topics as well as kind of you mentioned that you saw some things coming that other people didn't. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, I kind of want to like define some terms for our listeners. Sure. Uh, so, again, your article most downloaded yeah. in 2018 uh, was on the relationship between racial resentment and po- political ideology. Uh-huh. Um, and for our listeners, I feel like it's important to just define, you know, what is racial resentment? How is it similar or different to racism? You know, what does it look like to measure racial resentment? Sure. So this is going to kind of go down in the weeds a little bit. And there's a kind of meta conversation that I want to append that I think is really important to have kind of shows up a lot in, in, in the Twitter world that I, that I want to have. But I want to answer your question directly first. So in, in terms of survey research going way, way back 30, 40 years, um, in the in the post civil rights period, we start to see a big decline in in the expression of explicit racist attitudes, where people will make group level attributions of inferiority. Members of this group are inferior. Members of this group are less intelligent. Members of this group, usually we're talking about non-white racial outgroups, especially African Americans, in in this case, right? So members of this group are less intelligent, less hardworking, more violent, etc. We see a decline in the expression of those kind of attitudes. But what we see is an increase in the expression of what scholars have called different kinds of new racist attitudes or attitudes of, of new racism. And these are attitudes that, that don't make those kind of um, attributions of immutable racial inferiority, but critically, they still make group level attributions and they sort of, um, you know, frankly, they express cultural sort of racism, right? They say there's going back to the sort of cultural racist tropes of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and pathology, right? The sort of idea that um, especially black families and, and, and black communities are somehow pathological. Namely, mostly with racial resentment, there's a sort of idea that quote unquote, the black community doesn't buy into real um, American values such as individualism and hard work. And that, that that is the best way to understand or explain racial inequality. And it's it's basically like, you know, thinking about it as sociologists as we are, it's the kind of individual versus structural attribution that has a racial flavor. So it's a kind of individual attribution for racial inequality that has a kind of a cultural racist frame around it. 
So what's in the survey uh, uh, literature, the, the measure that's used most frequently, and it's one of the four measures that's in the index that's used in the article, is um, I believe it's uh, Irish, Italians, uh, Jews, and other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without special favors. So it's this way of talking about group differences and saying that the problem is essentially that this group um, is unlike other groups, not in a kind of a unique historical structural disadvantage, um, lack of access to mortgage and, and labor markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, it's about something that's culturally broken with this group. Um, so we see uh, there's a, a very long discussion in the political science literature about how um, this indicator um, does measure conservative political ideology, but the evidence is clear that it's that it's unique, that it measures something racial, that it is bound up with political ideology. That's sort of part of what the article does is to establish that. Um, but it's unique. It's really about racial attribution, and it really is um, a kind of exactly what the indicator suggests: re resentment, not just about explaining away or dismissing. There's a whole uh, literature from Tyrone Foreman and others about something called racial apathy that has also been on the rise. That's a whole other conversation that I'd be happy to talk about. People sort of just saying, I don't care about race and racism, white people saying that mostly. Um, but this is uh, a kind of a sense of not only are those claims illegitimate uh, for racial justice, but that I resent that people are making those claims. Um, and the, the point of the, the article, there's actually kind of four things in the article uh, that I would want to emphasize. The first is uh, our, our politics, especially among white people, are becoming more and not less racialized. Um, in a, a second important point is that the largest increase of, in racialization, to kind of put it statistically, the largest increase in the extent to which the relationship between political ideology and racial resentment increases is in response to Obama. So uh, a white voter's response to Obama uh, amounts to an increase in the relationship between political ideology and racial resentment. A key point, number three, is that Trump is a symptom and not a cause of this underlying dynamic. The GOP was already realigning in a way that really uh, um, foregrounded racial resentment as a kind of a, a glue that held together a kind of new coalition. And then the fourth important point that I think is, is clear to anyone who um, has been paying attention either, you know, kind of to things anecdotally or, or certainly the research is that if it comes to this debate about understanding 2016 between economic anxiety and racial resentment as a way of explaining the, the election, um, the evidence is, is really overwhelming that it's, it's about racial resentment. Um, so, so let me come back to answering the question about difference, similar to or different from racism. Um, I, I think that it's important to be really um, precise and distinct about what, what these attitudes are because some of them are different from others. So for example, racial apathy is different than racial resentment. It's different than what we often call, for example, traditional prejudice. Um, and I think there has been a really, really troubling habit, especially in our media. There's been a lot of um, 
really appropriate criticism, for example, of the New York Times and others for being completely unwilling to call racism racism. Um, and sometimes that kind of leaks over to, to academics and there's a sort of a sense of let's call a spade a spade here and let's say that this is, is racism. Um, I, I want to be clear that racial resentment is racism insofar as we understand racism to be about any structure, policy or attitude that creates or maintains racial inequality. It's very, very clear that these attitudes have that effect. Um, but, you know, once we get down to sort of like, what do we mean by racism? You know, as sociologists, when we use that word, unambiguously racial resentment is racism. Um, but but what kind of racism is it kind of in the um, in, in the public imagination? That's a, that's a, a more complicated conversation. Um, that's a distinct conversation to me from the, the soft selling of racism that happens in our in our prestige media. That's really problematic. But I have seen in Twitter in a way um, and it showed up in some response to the research that was a little frustrating, to be honest, is that people were, you know, it was kind of like the eye rolls of. Oh, racial resentment, huh? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and that's sort of one of those things as as uh, public public scholars that we have to kind of try to navigate the space where we're we're used to these really privileged spaces, academic spaces, where we can have all this time to really contextualize things and talk in our big fancy language, and then our conversation goes out into the place where it really matters, where it really should matter, um, and and it's more contentious. Um, but but I think that's a good thing, too. Yeah, no, um, you know, one of the things that was mentioned in this in this particular article, right, uh, is that, you know, you said racial resentment has been consistently significant force in U.S. politics, you know, for about at least 30 years. Yep. And then as recently, we've been seeing an increase. And yeah. you already alluded to the fact that it's kind of like potentially this Obama effect. Um, what, was Obama the only factor contributing in your eyes to this or, you know, has it been boiling up with other things? You know, what's your take on that? So that's a good question. And I, one thing that, that I think is really important to say and say clearly um, is that people will often say Obama caused it. And I think it's really important to, to say loudly Obama didn't cause it. Reaction to Obama caused it. So mm-hmm. the, the evidence is pretty clear that there's a, kind of a specific mechanism. I don't get too far down in the weeds here, but but uh, a lot of the effect is concentrated among white people, especially white men without college degrees who um, were not very into politics and didn't have a very clear sense of, of the parties and a very clear sense of kind of how um, racial policy and racial um, attitudes were distributed across the parties. And that when the face of the Democratic Party um, became a person of color, um, that had the effect of sorting um, racial conservatives into the Republican Party with great efficiency. And so people who were racially resentful, people who were racist um, in a way that had never so quickly and so efficiently happened before, though it's important to emphasize this process had been underway for a long time already for some structural reasons, um, really quickly sorted quickly out of the Democratic Party. Those people that were the sort of "quote unquote" Reagan Republicans, people, uh, a white, largely white men and women who didn't go to college, uh, who lived in Rust Belt communities, um, who had union jobs, um, those folks uh, 
who hadn't been political before had a really kind of clear cue for the first time um, that they understood racial politics in a way that they hadn't before. And they came to understand those racial politics critically in a zero-sum kind of way, which is to say Obama is for them and so he can't be for us. So the other thing, and this is a lengthier kind of conversation, is that we have a larger scale sorting underway in the parties that preceded Obama. Um, and that, that, that sorting is geographic so that, um, we know that, um, rural areas are becoming more conservative and, um, that urban areas are becoming more liberal. Um, and suburban areas have been kind of somewhat swinging back and forth. Um, but one of the things that's happening is that all the way down to the level of kind of personality type that, that people who have, um, there's a, a, I don't want to go too far down the weeds, but uh, some, some work in, in social psychology about uh, the big five uh, personality characteristics in people who have, for example, high levels of uh, openness to experience are likely to sort out of small towns and into big cities. And that personality characteristic is associated, for example, with um, a liberal political ideology. So, so there's a bunch of sorting that was go going on already, and that sorting, geographic and otherwise, was already increasingly associated with these changes in racial attitudes. And when people move, there are also kind of ecological effects where they have effects on each other's racial attitudes as well. It's just that Obama, the response to Obama, really accelerated that. Mm, interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about, I guess, how other personality, you know, factors or traits shape, you know, your uh, willingness to, you know, move away. And that's why, you know, certain political ideologies might be concentrated somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I took a class uh, on like politics and um it was like a social psychology of like racism and discrimination. Yep. And they talked about the concept of social dominance. Yes. Um, have you ever looked into that? Oh, yes. Uh, I got some some work uh, looking at, at, at social dominance orientation right now. That's really foundational work in, in a lot of ways. And it's it's a great bridge to the really sociological stuff and the really psychological, social psychological stuff. And it's something I keep coming back bumping into, which is if, if you think about if there is a, I don't want to overstate it, but a kind of a grand unifying um, structure, personality structure that seems to tie together inclinations toward, toward hierarchy, um, which is itself oriented toward different kinds of, um, you know, outgroup derogation or prejudice. Um, you know, social dominance orientation does seem to, to do that work. It is associated with uh, a political ideology. Um, it does do a lot of work. Um, the, 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 I want to really kind of put the emphasis on the, on the sociological side and put our sociological thumbs on the scale and say, um, I, I, the evidence is not at all clear that this is a kind of an inborn trait that is completely un- affected by environment or life experience. Um, and critically, there's lots and lots of personality traits and kind of social psychological phenomena that are distributed in, in what might count as surprising ways across racial difference 
in a way that that you know the way that people's racial experience structures their life experience and their attitudes and their behaviors is way more important than than these underlying uh, uh, social psychological personality characteristics. So, so I do, I do want to say that uh, my own work has shifted a lot toward looking at social, social psychological, but, but I also am a sociologist at the end of the day. And I think, um, you know, structures are really, really important, but SDO is really in, in, interesting and important. And maybe at, if we have some time at the end, I talk about one of the projects I'm working on that, that looks at it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So speaking of racial attitudes, um, there was recently an article on Vox uh, that noted racial resentment drives opposition to uh, gun control. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering uh, about your thoughts on like in thinking about racial resentment um, as a factor in opposition to different policies. Does racial resentment drive opposition to any other uh, important policies? in the U.S. How much time do you have? <laughs> so I know that I know this article really well, uh, Alexander Falindra. Uh, I've actually got a piece that's kind of related to it. Uh, again, maybe with some time at the end to talk a little bit about it. But yeah, um, in, in terms of the scholarship, there's ab- absolutely a ton of work that finds that this is kind of the the primary mechanism of racialization of a whole bunch of policies. So. If, if you if you look at measuring or figuring out how is it and, and to what extent are racial attitudes associated with a different kind of policy today, there's lots and lots and lots of work on uh, racial resentment and how it structures public policy. A, a foundational piece, um, there's a, a book from the late 90s called uh, Why Americans Hate Welfare um, that finds very clearly that uh, there's a really strong correlation between racial resentment and white opposition to welfare policy. And um, that that the the author finds, Martin Gillens finds that that's really bound up with a racialization of welfare policy that um, when our welfare system was created, you talked about this a little bit in in a a podcast, I think back in July, as you were talking about the creation of the welfare state and the great society and so on. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was set aside for white people, essentially. You know, the Social Security Administration and, and all of our welfare programs were uh, basically uh, set aside for white people. They, they excluded people of color. And as our, as our welfare system began in, in the early 1960s to include people of color, our media system began to way overrepresent uh, uh, people of color as um, beneficiaries of, of those programs and unsympathetic beneficiaries of those programs, uh, Gillen's fines. And, um, and he suggests in the book that that, that effectively racializes uh, a welfare. And, and he found in the 90s that there was uh, um, almost stronger than any other kind of attitude, racial resentment, uh, uh, predicted opposition to welfare, even when controlling for everything else that, that should matter, uh, including uh, one's own uh, sort of personal interest, um, certainly all kinds of political uh, uh, measures and et cetera. And uh, critically, you know, uh, uh, today, 20 years later, those relationships are stronger than they were when the initial work was was done. If we look at education policy, there's a lot of work on racial resentment, uh, uh, predicting a variety of different kinds of uh, um, education reform policies. 
lots and lots of work on criminal justice policy, some of my own recent stuff, which I'd be happy to talk about if we have time, um, uh, attitudes about police policing, punitivity, uh, things about um, uh, three strikes laws and capital punishment, um, lots and lots of uh, uh, work in, in lots of areas, uh, finds that once a policy can be uh, associated with um, people of color, um, that policy can be very usefully derogated. Here's a way to think about it, as a lot of scholars have suggested. If you, you have a policy that is generally pretty popular, there's some work by a political scientist named uh, um, Spencer Piston uh, that came out, I think, last year that, that that, that kind of turns uh, conventional wisdom upside down that, that, that suggests that actually in the United States, people are pretty sympathetic to poor people in the main um, and actually pretty resentful toward rich people in the main. But but the the, the book says, you know, the, the thing is that in the United States, we don't we don't very efficiently frame the problem um, in terms of policy responses to those things. Um, what happens in the United States, on the other hand, is that policies that are unpopular, that, that po pardon me, that, that politicians wish to oppose, um, they associate with a, a socially marginalized group. Uh, Mark Lamont Hill uh, made this point one time that I, I think tied really well in here. He said, you know, if you start to think about the things that we associate with the word public, public parks, public pools, public transportation, um, you start to th understand that in the United States, we, we think of those things as less desirable, uh, public benefits, and we uh, associate those things with people of color. And that if you're somebody who has a, a political agenda that's oriented toward privatization, um, it becomes beneficial to associate things with a, a, a socially marginalized group, because then you can borrow on that prejudice against that group um, and, and benefit from the energy oriented toward disinvestment of those things. So that, that's a long way of saying that if you can associate um, more investment in, in, in education or criminal justice reform or uh, welfare, uh, extension of welfare benefits, uh, you can ex extend those things Pardon me, you can associate those things with people of color, then you can borrow on the prejudices that go with those people and apply those things to those programs. And so we've we've seen that time and time and again um, in lots and lots of ways, uh, up to and including, I guess I'll just mention really quickly the, the project that I have um, involving guns where I came across Folindra's work. I, I, I was looking at that, that paper that's referenced in the Vox article and I started to, to, to wonder more broadly about how racial attitudes structure gun ownership and attitudes about guns. And, and I was looking at some survey research, and, and one of the variables of gun ownership was uh, in, the, in the data set was coded, um, you know, owns gun is a one, doesn't own a gun is a two, and refused is a three. And I started thinking about cleaning the data, and I was like, okay, I got to, you know, recode this variable. And I thought, refused? That's interesting. And then I started to do the analysis and look at the racial attitudes of the people who refused. And boy, are they interesting. So the, the racial attitudes of white people who refused to report whether or not they own a gun are very racist. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that re- that relationship between refusal and racist attitudes increases really significantly after 2008, which is to say after the face of the federal government becomes an African-American man, after there's a really concerted elite uh, effort to associate this man of color uh, with a kind of a campaign of gun grabbing, right? And so I'm, I've got a couple of projects going on, including that one, looking at the racialization of, of gun attitudes, uh, which seems to be uh, pretty significant. Yeah, that's you know, that's all super interesting, and you know, kind of brings you back. You know, you kind of already addressed it briefly, and even talking about guns and violence, and naturally, you know, criminal justice system and policing. In your article, uh, "More Black Than Blue," which came out in 2017, was really fascinating because you looked at the racial attitudes of police officers, right, and and between black and white police officers, and you know, one of the major findings and things that stood out to me. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Was the fact that you know, white officers were um, more conservative than, you know, just, I guess, general white folks in the public and black folks where there was not, I guess, a difference between, um, I guess, political views between officers and, and, you know, people who weren't police officers as much as it was for the white officers. Am I correct? So the the, uh, on racial attitudes. So there was a a difference between uh, white citizens and white cops. And there wasn't a statistically significant difference between black citizens and white and, and black cops. Okay, great. Yes, yeah. So, and, you know, I find that really fascinating. So, you know, can you spend some time to talk about those findings a little bit more and kind of what this means in the, in the, in the I guess, realm of policing? And, you know, are there any policy implications for these kind of findings? Yeah. Um, again, uh, something that is, is pretty timely. So, you know, as it, it I, I was looking around for a way to uh, directly measure um, the, the racial attitudes of police in a way that, that removes some of the stigma um, from, from asking a question. You know, one of the, the inherent problems, especially at a time where, it, you know, it was really, really salient for everybody involved, is that when you approach somebody with the salience of that attitude, whether it be a police officer or anything else, in, in the context of that, that identity being really salient, that identity is going to be really, really involved in how much they mask their their attitudes, um, and so uh, it occurred to me if I if I look at the occupational codes, the General Social Survey, uh, and I go back as far as they'll go, I'll have a pretty big set of police officers in there, and I can look at whether and how police officers might be different from others. So there's a long literature about this question about police personality and, and whether and how. And here, Daphne, we, we come back to social dominance orientation, authoritarianism, and a couple other kind of personality uh, characteristics that are subject of a lot of work in this area. Uh, but whether and how a police personality might exist, what it is, uh, is subject to a lot, of, a lot of discussion. But the kind of key point of debate in that literature is to the extent that something exists and there's broad agreement that there is something that there are personality characteristics that are different um, the key point of of contention is whether those those differences um, are the result of a, a, a selection effect ie certain kinds of people are more likely to go on law enforcement or a kind of a treatment effect or a culture effect uh, that being on the job or in the force sort of molds people differently. 
so that was one of the background kind of questions of, of the work. But really, I was interested in the context of all of these killings, all of these murders of unarmed men of color, um, to look at trying to find a direct measure of the racial attitudes of, of white police officers. And so what I did was I, I got a big enough uh, a sample going from uh, uh, 1972 to 2016 and compared on a whole host of measures um, from uh, traditional prejudice to uh, racial resentment, of course, to denial of discrimination, um, uh, to uh, belief in one's own uh, discrimination. And, and what I found was uh, that um, it's important, well, I'll summarize the findings quickly. What I found was that, that white, white police officers are much more racially conservative than, than are uh, white citizens. Uh, most concerningly, uh, white police officers are nine times more likely than white citizens to say that African Americans are more violent than white people. So there's a, a very, very direct, very, very concerning kind of attribution that has a very direct association with the discharge of their of their job. But there are a range of other statistically significant findings that that white police officers are really, um, as I say in the summary, um, the most racially conservative subset of the most racially conservative group in US society. And given that I didn't find statistically significant differences between black police officers and black citizens. And I should say the, the racial coding in the GSS is, is terrible. It's black, white, and other. It collapses all the racial variation uh, among all other people of color into other, which is terrible. And many of us have been arguing uh, uh, for more than a decade to get that changed, and finally it was. So I was unable to look at other uh, uh, variation among other uh, racial groups of officers and citizens because the numbers were too small. So I didn't, I didn't find a difference between uh, uh, black officers and, and black citizens, which it's, it's very, um, very tentative, but it does uh, provide evidence against the sort of treatment effect, right? So if it was a treatment effect that we should find that being a police officer uh, uh, sort of makes black officers more likely to take on those attitudes like white officers do, but they don't. So the policy implications, I think, are are clear in what should happen. Um, what exactly form what should happen takes is the is the is the tough part. Um, interventions like like trainings and um, and diversification of forces uh, along racial lines show complicated and mixed uh, uh, impact. One thing that shows pretty reliable impact on uh, reductions in police use of force and other kinds of positive outcomes um, is uh, gender diversification, more women officers, and higher education among officers. Um, mm. So those things are expensive. Those things are hard. There's a lot of resistance to those things. Um, I think that training and interventions uh, uh, in, in terms of trying to interrupt implicit bias, um, training in terms of trying to diversify, racially diversify the force are, are absolutely worthy goals that need to happen for lots of reasons, not just including 
reduction in, in racist police use of force. Um, it's just that the, the evidence is, is less clear and strong on those in terms of the empirical evidence. I think the moral imperative is, is really, really, really strong to do those things. It has to be said, um, and, and I have to say uh, that I got some, for both of these two pieces of research, I got some unfriendly uh, uh, attention, mm. including um, on this piece, I got a, an unfriendly uh, uh, call from a police union who wanted, wow. all my, wanted all my raw data, and I happily turned it all over, and I never heard from them again, I guess, because they didn't find what they were looking for. But mm. um, there's a lot of resistance, I, I think, to change and a, and a, a sense that um, – I think there's a sense that, that folks are, are – uh, that, that people who aren't police don't understand and that they're under assault. It has to be said that um, – attacks and, and, and murders of police officers are actually going down, that violent crime in general is going down. Being a police officer is really, really hard. But it, it, uh, there's some evidence that, that looking in particular into the pipeline at a criminal justice majors um, in college, that students that have certain kinds of personalities, namely social dominance orientation and authoritarianism, um, that there's a, a disproportionately high incidence of personality types and people who are interested in the use of deadly force who go into policing. There are also people, it has to be said, that who want to help people who are motivated for lots of, there are lots and lots of people. Being police is, police officer is, is a hard job. People go into it for, for a lot of great reasons. But it's also really clear that there's a overrepresentation of people with racist attitudes. And that that's a problem and that net of everything else that's going on that you do not want, uh, you know, that people I have another project that finds that that white police officers are likely more likely net everything else. This is not published yet to live in in segregated uh, racially segregated areas where they're going into communities of color, where the police in communities of color. And that's their only interaction with people of color. Mm. So they're engaging in in really high stress interactions with people of color they have these negative attitudes and they have no other kinds of relationships and that's a, a recipe for disaster oh wow this is all so fascinating mm, and yeah. like scary yeah. at the same time yeah, like, exactly wow. yeah, exactly that's what i was talking about before absolutely yeah you know, speaking of resistance, um, yep. you know, not only do you conduct research on these topics and, you know, now you get a lot of public attention, which, yeah. you know, we'll keep you in our, you know, thoughts. Yeah. Uh, but I was wondering how this dynamic plays out in the classroom, especially because you're teaching about topics related to race, politics and stratification. Uh, you know, some people think these topics are controversial and there has actually been a lot of just like narratives out about how colleges are too liberal, professors are brainwashing students. And so how do you handle resistance in the classroom? And I guess what are your thoughts on the narrative that, you know, professors are pushing a liberal agenda? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. And, and you might not be surprised to know that this is something I follow pretty closely. And I'm thinking a lot about politics and higher education and, and things like that. The first thing to say is that that I'm a cisgendered straight white guy and that I have a special kind of responsibility to do some of this work. And and the evidence is really clear that 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 people will hear things from he that they won't hear from other people. 
and um, I take that really, really seriously. Um, and so that's the first thing to say. Um, I'm really, really conscious of of this dynamic, um, and I, I, the way that I, I uh, structure the work is to be very conscious of the fact that I'm naming issues as important issues and that that is a political act. Um, but I don't make assertions that anyone should take a position. I don't make assertions that anyone should um, should take a, a given action. I make assertions that this is an important thing uh, for our society that students should uh, come to understand the evidence um, and that they should take seriously. Um, and um, I'm in a context in, at an institution um, that has a kind of a reputation for being very social justice oriented. So both within the institution and from without, there's a lot of um, stereotyping about the work that we do. And there's a lot of um, uh, criticism about the work that we do. Um, and when those things come up in the classroom or from without, I'm very, very uh, direct with students about um, creating spaces where people can ask questions and uh, challenging students to consult the data and challenging students to find out what the evidence suggests um, and uh, building spaces where people can ask tough questions um, and put things on the table. And I think it, it can be most productive when um, we are actually able to get misconceptions that are somewhat broadly held on the table and students are able to go out and um, and find out what the evidence suggests. Um, it, it is a really difficult space in which, and you know, as much as I study politics, um, I, I have found in the Trump era that I've had to address sort of partisan things for the very first time in a way that I never have before, um, that I've always kind of avoided um, as much as it's exactly the stuff I'm studying and thinking about all the time. Um, you know, thinking about, for example, things about about the narratives in the Department of Justice or in the White House about the nature of immigration or what's going on in terms of crime. And, and I have to say to students, the things that are being said are not true. There is no evidence, you know, it, it's a real challenge. And I, and I also have to tell students you know, I taught I taught a course way back in the fall of 2016. It's right as the election was happening, called the Sociology 2016 Election, and and there's this sort of tension that that I used to frame the class, which is to say, you know, this moment that we're in is at the one, and this is really kind of the the um, the final framing device of the course. You know, telling all these 18 and 19 year old students, on the one hand, what we're seeing is completely new. Like we've never seen some of this stuff before. Uh, doing politics this way is in, in, is explicit. Like the kind of you know things that we talk about political science, like uh, negative partisanship. People basically just voting entirely against the other group instead of their own. People being totally emotionally oriented against the other group. Um, you know, kind of racist appeals being in the bullhorn instead of in the dog whistle, for example. 
On the other hand, Uh, These kinds of uses of race to animate our politics is deeply and fundamentally, uh, constitutionally American. There's nothing that's more American in some ways than this. And, And to challenge students to kind of sit with that paradox. You know, the Nicole Hannah Jones, the 1619 Project that just came out in the New York Times magazine gets at gets at this in a lot of detail so um you know i do that work and and to be honest i'm i'm a i'm a big giant white guy and uh if i'm really honest that that means that i hear a little less of it than than some other people do and i name that for students and and that gives that and that's not to intend let me be i want to be really clear i I don't mean that to say that i i use my my size or uh, my physicality in the world to intimidate at that i don't Folks, I don't mean that at all. I mean that to say I try to challenge people to be aware of the fact that my own presence in the world and the perception of me uh, allocates to me an authority that they don't attribute to uh, my brilliant colleagues who are small women of color, for example, and how they come to see authority differently and how they come to question and and see uh, uh, claims as politicized. Uh, uh, when they come from other folks and, the, and they don't see them as politicized when they come from me. But they still do see them as politicized sometimes, right? Um, and I just, I would close uh, the response to that question just by saying, it's a hard question and I'm really afraid. I'm afraid because I've seen the survey data that suggests that the problem is getting worse in that a, a rising proportion of the country uh, of, of political conservatives uh, are disengaging from higher education, are seeing it as uh, not valuable. And if this is a, a kind of a public trust and a commons that we all need to have investment in, um, we're in big, big trouble if 35 or 40% of the society says, we don't want to invest in this anymore. That's a, that's a big problem. And I think the answer to that is not to sort of say, well, um, you know, it, is is uh, is racism right or wrong? Let's hear both sides. That's not the right answer, right? But uh, it is something we we should we should be paying attention to. Mm, yeah, no, that's real. You know, I gotta ask this question too because of your expertise, and I know, you know, you you've been probably following it like most of us have, and me and Daphne at least. Um, you know, this I guess pool of candidates for the Democratic Party. Um, you know, you don't have to go whatever you're comfortable with talking about, you know, to go too, be too specific, but I guess generally, what are your overall thoughts and feelings about this upcoming election? And I guess, you know, how should we begin to think and frame these kind of conversations around um, the Democratic Party and, and going against somebody like Trump? So what I was talking about, the, the one side of things about how things are different, I, I think it's important to, to take a minute those of us who think a lot about racial justice and notice that at least in terms of the debate, you know, we got a lot of folk who are taking really seriously, talking really seriously about reparations. We're talking really serious about structural racism. Now that's just talk. It's important to say that, right? But these things are on the table in a way that I couldn't imagine uh, a, a while ago. Um, and so that's really interesting to me, and that the Democratic Party and the progressive base of the Democratic Party has moved really far on racial justice. That's on attitudes, right? That's not policy, and that's those things are not the same. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, so there is this narrative, which I, 
I think is kind of implicit in your question, Ty, as I'm hearing you, um, about, you know, is it about electability or is it about um, supporting someone who is likely to uh, support the policies that we know will uh, bring about racial justice and social justice and, and, and creating spaces for uh, trans people and all the other kinds of things that are uh, really crises in our country. Um, and, you know, there, there's this general kind of thing of a, a lot of people, uh, there, I've seen some, some data that suggests that, that uh, for example, Joe Biden is the, the first choice of relatively few people but a lot of people think that Joe Biden is the first choice of everyone else. <laughs> so, so there's this sort of sense of like, um, I think I want to support Biden because everybody else is supporting Biden. Um, it has to be said that, that on a lot of things, uh, Biden is very progressive compared to, to, um, to Democrats historically. Compared to the rest of the, of the group, he's not. Um, I was doing some reading in the past couple of days, and, and, and I guess I'll, I'll answer the question in substance this way. There's this way, way of thinking about 2016 and therefore thinking about 2018, framing it as a question of, does one think about nominating a candidate in order to turn people out, or does one think about nominating a candidate in order to reach the broadest number of voters. And um, it is clear that a, a more progressive candidate is not likely to win um, conservative voters. One thing that it's important to say that my own research has some implications for is that this sorting and this uh, um, kind of reorganization of the party system and the preeminence of these racial attitudes and the, the sorting along lines of racial attitudes in education suggests that places like our favorite everybody, Indiana and Ohio, are probably <laughs> places that have pretty much permanently moved or for a very long time. Ohio's not a, a swing state anymore. Ohio's a Republican state. Indiana will not be a Democratic state anymore. That um, areas that, that moved from, from Obama to Trump will not be moving back. So I say all of that to say that um, there's some evidence that um, the strategies to turn out the progressive base are every bit as viable as strategies to try to woo centrist voters. And the final thing to say is that um, Trump is really underwater with independence. Now, political scientists argue a lot about what an independent is, that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, uh, it is true that Trump is very, very, very popular with Republicans. Um, historically, more popular with Republicans than any president has been, uh, maybe ever. But he's really, really underwater with independents. Um, and so, so having said that, um, looking at, at uh, more progressive candidates like Elizabeth Warren, like Kamala Harris, um, like Bernie Sanders, uh, there are, uh, um, I think that those candidates are more viable than maybe is is the conventional wisdom. Um, it will be interesting to see the next couple of months 
and the process winnowed down. One last thing to say um, that I've seen a lot of scholarship to suggest that a lot of these really marginal candidates would be really, really viable Senate candidates in their home states. Uh, the former governor of Montana would be a really viable Senate candidate in Montana. Beto O'Rourke would be a really viable uh, Senate candidate in Texas, um, and so on. If these folks would just sort of <laughs> drop out of the race and run for Senate. So it's going to be a really, really interesting race. And um, evidence suggests that the president will lean in really hard to racism, that his own strategy is to turn out his, his base and that um, doing everything that he can to appeal to racial resentment and racial fear about white decline, um, that that's only, he's only going to be doubling down on that and that that will work, that that's going to turn out a lot of people. Um, and whether or not, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a hell of a year and a half. <sighs> well, like you said earlier, I'm hopeful, just not optimistic. Oh yeah, my God. right, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, this has been a really awesome conversation. I uh, just wanted to see, if, you know, if there's anything you wanted to add that we didn't, you know, ask you or that we didn't address. Um, anything we should be looking out for? Um, I got a chance to talk about a lot of things. I really appreciate it. Um, I've got a bunch of, of projects coming up that that I might want to just mention really quickly. Um, so. I've been spending a lot of time on this kind of racialization of, of police and criminal justice uh, stuff. And so um, I've got a number of projects. I've got one under uh, review with a, a colleague from, from Purdue with, with Rob Morris, uh, where we find that, that racial resentment and racial threat are a, a really strong predictor of uh, support for spending on policing. And that's net, by the way, of uh, crime rate and a couple of other things. Um, I've got a, a, a project that finds that um, those with a, a more salient white identity um, are more likely to support police use of force, which is obviously uh, really concerning. Uh, I got a, a project um, that um, finds that um, more racially resentful whites are more likely to um, feel more warmly toward police. And that's also uh, correlated with a measure of racial threat. There's a whole literature in, in sociology and political science that finds that where population of racial outgroups, especially African-Americans, is larger, white people will be more conservative and more punitive and more racially resentful. And so in that project, uh, find that uh, uh, white people feel warmer toward police who are more racially resentful and who live in counties with larger black populations. Uh, I've got a project that uses the implicit association test that finds that uh, white police have um, more uh, implicit, anti-black implicit bias than uh, do others. Uh, but that's only uh, white police who take the take the exam on their own. They take the implicit attitudes test on their own, not those that take it through work. Hmm. Um, a project I'm really interested in, I'm excited about that I'll be working on f during sabbatical. Uh, there's a bunch of work in political psychology. A great scholar named Antoine Banks who does work on um, uh, emotion and racial attitudes. 
uh, who finds that um, anger is a kind of an attitude that brings racial attitudes to the fore in, in, in motivating uh, uh, political attitudes and behavior. And I got really interested in, in victim impact statements. So between uh, uh, conviction and sentencing in the last 25 years uh, uh, in different municipalities, um, uh, victims of crimes can, can give statements about their experiences. Uh, again, between conviction and sentencing, and that uh, information in the victim impact statement can be admissible um, before sentencing. And and based on on Banks's work, um, I'm looking at how, whether and how uh, the use of a victim impact statement and the anger that it kind of engenders might create a racial disparity in sentencing. Uh, I mentioned the uh, racial attitudes of those who refuse to respond to gun attitudes, something that actually doesn't have to do with race. One of my projects here, a um, couple more. I got a couple more here. Um, the Washington Post put together a, uh, a database of all the school shootings in the country. Um, and uh, I took a look at um, all the, among all the, the variables they had there. They had whether or not there was a school resource officer or a police officer in the school. And I did a pretty robust analysis. This project should be coming out um, late this fall or maybe in the winter. I actually find that the presence of a resource, school resource officer is associated with more casualties when there's a school resource officer than when mm. there's not, which is interesting. Um, I have a project looking at, at school textbooks, at anatomy and physiology textbooks. And I find that along with my co-author that um, those with more racist and sexist attitudes are more likely to prefer white male embodied um, anatomy images. Um, and they're more likely to say that their textbook is diverse, which has sort of interesting implications for people who look around and say their world is already diverse. Those are people who are the most racist and sexist. Hmm. And finally, I'm really excited about this one. Um, some work on voter ID. I harassed a, a great political scientist uh, named David Wilson, who's at the, the University of Delaware, who's done all the best work on voter ID and racial attitudes um, until he, he let me have the, the best data that he has um, and looked at um, how the racial composition of where white people live affects their attitudes about voter ID, kind of relying again on this um, racial threat and social control kind of idea. And I find that white people who live in counties with higher black populations are more likely to support voter ID, kind of uh, mm. moving toward political control of a racial outgroup. So I'm gonna try to get as many of those done uh, during sabbatical as possible. Uh, yeah, I got a lot going. I need <laughs> I, I need a bunch of graduates. Send, send me graduate students, everybody. I need Absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah. such interesting work. I, yeah, I would love you. to be like one of your grad students. Yeah, yeah. You got a lot of great work going on yourself appreciate that yeah can't can't say it enough man you're doing a lot of great work a lot yes, of much you. needed and timely work for sure so we definitely appreciate all you're doing and i'm sure our listeners are definitely um encouraged by the work you're doing and probably want to keep following you so is there any social media handles websites and stuff like that they can link up with you to follow your work and all the new results that start being published yeah so they can find me uh, on twitter at hoosier blues man that's a old twitter handle i have from a long time ago so when i keep keep using so that's h-o-o-s-i-e-r-b-l-u-e-s-m-a-n find me there on twitter and uh 
yeah i have a i'll keep posting all the new stuff as it's coming out there great we'll be sure to link that uh, when we post this episode so for all our listeners you can just go check out the link in the post and then be able to get connected right to um ryan um other than that ryan we just want to say thanks man for taking the time to come chat with us about your work it's very enlightening um definitely not like i said we both really really enjoyed this and appreciate it once we seen the work you were putting out of course we know you personally but the work you're doing um speaks volumes you know for the community and for social change so we appreciate that mm-hmm. yes <laughs> it's a real pleasure i'm a big fan thank you both very much Thank you. Yo, yo Dad, so you think about Dr. LeCount coming in to talk to us about a lot of great stuff today. A lot of great stuff. I just have to say, um, Ryan was always an inspiration for me at Purdue. I always thought his work was really interesting. And I, I feel like he was the first person, him and Nick Vargas were the first to kind of introduce me to some of these concepts about, you know, race and politics and, you know, social dominance and sociological theories related to prejudice and politics. And it really sparked my interest in these topics. And I, you know, I tried apply them to education so it's really good one to see him on the other side you know tenured but also doing this awesome work that is being like recognized publicly yeah no i completely agree you know ryan was definitely one of the ogs when i got there too. oh gee <laughs> <laughs> og ryan you know he was always cool showing us the rope giving mm-hmm. giving us support telling us mm-hmm. about resources always in the office you know he would come out play i would hoop with him sometimes i went to a couple of his shows when he was playing um, with the, with his blues band in Lafayette. Um, so he was just, all, just all, all around good dude, man, and and doing a lot of great work. So, yeah, being connected with people like that, you know, is inspiring. And, um, and you know, you can tell it, and me, it's like it's genuine for him. You know, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, I'm just doing this so I can get tenure or so I can get recognized. It's like, no, I'm doing this because I really want to push the narrative forward and, and create some real social change and inspiring the next generation to do so. So... It's so great that you said that because one of my issues with sociology has always been that I feel like a lot of people research topics because they seem cool because they're going to like make you stand out like, oh, look at your research. You're so witty and trendy or whatever it is. But like you say, yeah, it is so genuine for Ryan. And I appreciated the comments about like... I would say like we talk about allyship, we talk about these things, but this is like in terms of like racial justice, in terms of uh, inequality and discrimination, like this is what an outlier looks like, like recognizing that like in the classroom, you know, he may be able to say certain things or there might be students might give more legitimacy to what he says and using that space to not try to indoctrinate students but teaching them how to use evidence to answer questions to um just speak the truth you get what i'm saying yeah that's so needed especially in these college classrooms you know a lot of people think that it's very interesting that you know the public or whomever conservatives feel like this is like some like progressive, you know, farming house for students. We're just, yeah, 
I just wish sometimes they would actually come and try to teach a course. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like a lot. You can tell that the people who adopt those rhetorics are the ones who are not sitting in a college classroom because it's not easy. They're making this assumption that whatever we just say, students are going to believe and just take it and run and all of a sudden leave with the, become these social justice warriors, which is, you know, it's just not the case. <laughs> it's um, not. It is a, there is quite a bit. I mean, most of the time, of course, you're going to have students in your major who choose to take your classes, but there's a lot of resistance. And even with faculty of color, if you look at, um, you know, SEI, student evaluations and stuff like that, how oftentimes we are just more likely to get more negative evaluations just for who we are. You know what I'm saying? No matter what we're teaching or whatever our teaching approach is, compared to our white counterparts, it's a lot of stuff that factors into it. And just by them just assuming that, yeah, you know, we're just walking in there saying progressive this, progressive that, and students are like, oh my God, now I'm a progressive. It's, it's not the case. And that's not our intent as well. You know, what Ryan said, like, it's really not about politics. It's really just speaking truth. And what does yeah. the data say? Yeah. You know what? I would. So I'm in the process, of course, putting my job market documents together. And so in writing my teaching statement, I feel like that was the foundation of what I wanted to express that, you know, I'm talking about controversial topics or I'm talking about taboo or topics that, you know, might cause controversy. And for me, it's not about telling students what the right answer is, but helping them to become critical thinkers as it relates to evidence, showing them how to find evidence, showing them how to verify the facts and come to conclusions based on solid evidence. And I feel like you know, that's kind of what I got from his answer. But you know what was funny? How he said the uh, union police, union uh, boss, like, contacted him, like, oh, I want to see the raw data. Yeah. Then, like, when he got the raw data, it's like, oop. Like, sure, here you go. <laughs> In silence. First of all, I don't think they knew what to do with that thing. They just trying to bully somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was probably like a bluff thing, like, oh, maybe he won't give it to us or something like that. But look, he was like, I ain't got nothing to have. Like, get your statistician, get whoever you want to look this over because it, it just is what it is. Yeah, you're going to find the same things, you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, even, you know, for listen, we talked a little bit off air and even just hearing about like, yeah, you know, we value the work that he does, but a lot of people don't like the police union. Um, and when this kind of information gets put out there, you know, sometimes you got people out here writing crazy things, saying crazy things, trying to call you about crazy things. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's like you're putting stuff on the line to do this good work as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not like, oh, I'm putting this out there. Everybody believes me and everything is all is good. It's quite a bit of people that will show and, and, and you know, talk about their frustrations and anger more than um, others. So. So it's just it's just not easy, bottom line. But we appreciate what Ryan he has, has, some, has done. Some sound bites that I am going to, of course, use and attribute to him. I like mm-hmm. the bullhorn, bullhorn, bullhorn versus dog whistle, and mm-hmm. how like you know in the past, you know, speaking through that dog whistle, but now, baby, they just putting it out there. Yeah, yeah, man. This is what Trump does and empowers <laughs> these groups, man. Where it is no longer secret or implicit, it is. Right there, smack in the face, just how it was, you know, pre-Civil Rights era, right? Yeah. All that time, we're revisiting these moments. And so, it's not, you know, the whole thing about optimism and and, and hopefulness, you know, it's important, you know? Um, it's like, yeah, looking at the data, looking at the situation we're in and, and remaining hopeful, but understanding, like, there's still a lot more fighting to do, folks. Mm-hmm. A lot more fighting to do. And, you know... 
I like I appreciated the distinction because I like to be very real sometimes. And I, I know at least I've had family members that thought that I was being like pessimistic and they're like, oh, you're just, you know, you're just thinking doom and gloom. But it, I think that's why that hopeful versus optimistic uh, distinction was really important because I haven't been optimistic since that election night in 20, what, 16? Mm-hmm. And and it's because, like, I am hopeful that, because it's like, there's a quote that's like the arc of justice, like, you know, the like arc of time always been towards justice. That's not the exact quote, but y'all get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am hopeful that we will continue to bend toward like justice, equality. But I also understand that, you know, the road has always been bumpy. There are always ups and downs and we are in a valley and, you know, there will be a peak I'm hopeful that there will be. I'm not optimistic that that peak is coming anytime soon, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it makes sense. It's realistic. And again, I guess, you know, we have that overlap with family members' perceptions, you know, because a lot of times, again, they always feel like, oh, I always think about things. Why are you so critical about things? You know, I guess it's the world we live in, the data we see, the things we read. Um, I think we get engulfed in this world a little more deeply than others. And so I think a lot of times people really don't, you know, understand. I guess sometimes you're thinking of when I think of like medical doctors and stuff like that. And sometimes the, the things they see or the things they know about the human body and, and how it operates and how they can, you know, sometimes think and see things differently when it may come to like germs and hygiene than the average person, you know, because they deep dive into it. I feel like it's sometimes the same way for those of us involved in the social sciences. It's like, you know, this is what we do on a daily basis. And, uh, like 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 Ryan was showing some of the data and what we've been seeing, you know, although it's raising awareness on things, it's still not what we want to see, you know, when it comes to policing and politics and racial resentment. Uh, and this is 2019, 18, what, in 2019? I don't even know what year it is. 2019, we're still seeing these things and things increase, you know, over time. Uh, it's good that we know about it, but it's also not good that it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> all right but you know appreciate ryan and all the work that you do man keep it up you know we're definitely gonna keep following all the projects you're doing because they're definitely timely and we need them and we'll you know find them and then report them here on bhd as well maybe even bring you back on after the sabbatical i have to get some good re r and r and some some good production going in with this work because we definitely want to see you publish it out um and I just love that he ain't new to this. He true to this. He been doing this work. He been yep. doing this work. Yeah, th- that is also true. That is also true. He's been doing it well before Trump. And we can speak to that because we were with him in graduate school. So so they're saying, you know, he's, it's not a popularity thing. Like, oh, oh, this is popping. Let me get into it. Nah, this has been his consistency, you know, throughout. So we appreciate that. Um, other than that, make sure you follow uh, uh, Ryan on his Twitter. We know we got the handle on the post so follow him and keep updated with his work reach out if anything interesting in ideas whatever i'm sure he'll be open to that and then you can go ahead and follow us at bhd podcast on twitter instagram and facebook you can also visit our website black and highly dangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content you can also email us bhd podcast at gmail.com with any ideas guests questions comments whatever it is we're always responsive to that then after you email us you can review and rate us on iTunes because that really helps us out. So go ahead and do that. 
And then after you review and rate us, go ahead and share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.